Welcome all, welcome all. We once again are tackling another colorful and very inspirational, very inspiring filmmaker. Has covered 11 movies, multiple TV commercials, formed his own production studio, Propaganda Films, which repped many high profile filmmakers has been heavily involved with Netflix, including directing episodes of shows that he produces, including House of Cards and Mindhunter. He has done multiple music videos for the likes of Madonna, Paula Abdul, Nine Inch Nels, Aerosmith, Steve Winwood, and more. We are talking David Fincher. So welcome to the show, yep. Justin. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. I just was remembering is like, yeah, we got to cover them. I had them like on the schedule for like 2025 and you were just like, <laughs> uh, we, we were getting back to each other and it's like, uh, you're just listening to a bunch of guys. I'm like, you know what, 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 what the fuck? Let, let's already just dive into David. What's, what's keeping us? <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's get into it. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad uh, I'm able to talk about someone of, you know, spent quite a bit of time watching his movies, watching his TV shows, all that sort of stuff. And he has so many and, Unlike other filmmakers where you can often kind of get, you know, the stink eye for, well, what do you mean you haven't seen that by him? He's done so much to where it's like, yeah, it's going to be a while. There's plenty of people who have never seen the game or will never give Alien Free a chance or didn't know they used to work in Industrial Light and Magic as like a, you know, a photographic effects artist, you know. <laughs> Just, totally. It, it, he's done so much and... I figured I'd just kind of get into it. So why, why do you suppose for a while there he was having to, in recent years, you know, he gets all this acclaim. He's he's another rarity along with kind of Spielberg and Christopher Nolan of doing all kinds of, you know, different movies and, and known for his serious yet psychologically gripping style and yet able to conquer both audiences and critics uh do, do you think it's just as a music video artist and his actually wanting to think like an audience member where every shot must matter every purpose must be fulfilled do, do you think he's just uh, what what else is it about him that has connected and resonated do you think he's got a good i i call it like the the south park paradox and I think David Fincher... <laughs> I love this. I can't wait to even explanation good, of this. A good grab on that, right? So the South Park <laughs> paradox, and, and this is going to... It might not seem immediately prescient to what he is, but but anyway, the, the, I just described that as like... They'll have like... Um, which one's a good example? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, there's an episode where... Uh, uh, where, where Kenny is dying or has died but is is like on the they're about to pull the plug and it's it's uh from the what was actually happening in the news back in i don't know 18 years ago i think i know the episode you're talking about but i can't totally life of me recall if i've actually seen it he's got a psp right like the psp is like a big deal right then and he's playing Mm -hmm. this game all the time to save um uh within the game you're like saving humanity from all the uh all the hell's um, hordes that are coming in and all these demons and everything trying to destroy, whatever. So within the game that they're playing, that's what's happening. And he's just hella good at it. He's not doing anything else. And he gets in, 
he ends up like getting run over or something and dying but then they keep him alive on the operating table and um so all these important things are happening this is a roundabout story but i swear it'll get smart so anyway no it's fine we're have, all uh, about metaphors and everything <laughs> <laughs> so and this is very typical uh south park and, and in a way it's sort of like david fincher too so um he ends up dying and we find out that this whole thing was just like a training scenario so that literal heaven could could grab a person from earth who could actually literally control the um the forces of good against the forces of evil with this massive uh <laughs> psp controller basically and that was like the only way that they could defeat hell so this is like this huge concept so many Very, concepts going in just for one giant joke you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. and and at the same time so like that's obviously there's no bigger battle to be had right and the fact that they would pick kenny and all this is like so um absurd so so there's there's sort of crazy absurdity also with um the most important thing that could happen within this world and at the same time you got um uh who's who's uh who's standing at the pearl gates peter right um <laughs> yeah yeah whoever, whoever it is whoever anyway, it is anyway, anyway one, one of the um and i forget if it's even him but one of the the one, one of the main um main angels up in heaven is trying to explain to him what he's doing there and that 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 is his goal is to like repel the horse and um so while he's doing this he's writing everything on a, a big rewrite erasable marker uh whiteboard and he starts sniffing the markers and like getting high off the markers while in heaven and he's like snorting the markers and then he goes back to writing and explaining that the devil's coming in here and then he starts snorting the markers again and it's such like a human pathetic like such a cheap joke but also just such a great joke that like they would be you know prone to that sort of shit even though they're angels they can't stop sniffing the fucking markers right and, and so it's that sort of paradox that's what i in, in south park does it a million times but it's that thing that i always see of like sort of the thing that just grabs you because it's so easy to like understand and it's funny and not that david fincher's making all that many things that are funny but you can sort of, <laughs> yeah just just that moment you're like he the the most important battle in the world also this this angel sitting here sniffing markers and he can't even get through his damn proposal to this kid about how to save the world and that's kind of sort of almost what, mirrors what fincher times. does how i mean the ringer indicated uh, you know, in their narrative on him that basically he knew no matter how an entire film, you know, to quote them on spools in his brain, actually turning it into reality requires endless amount of compromises, most of which only he would perceive. And it doesn't stop him from finding his way towards his version of a flawless end product. So, I mean, yeah. it is interesting how, yeah, it, it's just... You know, I think his hard. flawless. It, I think his flawless end product includes things that people can love on a very base level. They, they, in fight, in fight club is a really good example of just seeing the brutality side by side with the, the discussion of like we have no great battles to fight. 
Like, what are we doing here as humans? What the fuck do we care about duvets? He picks a different style in each film with really only his similar lighting and gaffing kind of being the only thing that connects any of them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, in a lot of ways. But the themes are there, right? Oh, yeah, the themes are there. Much like Dennis Vanab wants to literally hit you over the head with the pain and agony and suffering before you get to the end. Sure. And it's still not a happy end. And then, you know, uh, apparently Fincher was friends with, you know, uh, popcorn filmmakers like Dominic Cena, as well as uh, use some of the same cinematographers as Joel Schumacher. And Schumacher kind of adapted a similar kind of style in the 2000s where he's just very vapid, very blunt energy. And uh, I feel like Fincher, you know, he's kind of a more, if you will, accomplished Brian De Palma of this generation, I feel, other th- although, you know, he's going for his own uh, creative suspenseful frills because he studied film as far back, you know, many film historians will note, you know, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and other silent film, you know, touches in all of his films and, you know, De Palma was all about, hey, I I literally have been watching, you know, Alfred Hitchcock to death, and I'm going to just recreate a lot of his famous sequences, blurring the line between a homage and, you know, style, stylish filmmaker. So I think Fincher is more of the, you know, uh, I soak up what I want, but I still know what I truly want, and that's all that matters, versus, you know, as opposed to pulling a J.J. Abrams and being like, let's take scenes out of everything and just copy and paste it together, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, I think he actually hides his influences better than just about anyone. I mean, you know, obviously he's, he doesn't make movies like Tarantino where it's so, like, obvious. I'm the remixer DJ and then adding my two cents. and Totally. He's not like Christopher Nolan where, I mean, you know, Nolan has his pros. He also has his flaws. Everyone does. But yeah. Nolan is notorious for, I got to do everything. And sometimes yeah. I can't fess up that I'm not the best at sound mixing or action scenes. I need to just let the other guys I've hired do their job and make mm-hmm. me look good. Mm-hmm. And Scorsese and Spielberg have all been about keep a positive energy, make sure the actors love what you want and give them freedom to, you know, do what they want and let their cinematographers run, you know, rampant and, you know, uh, just storyboard with the visual effects artists and boom, you got your movie <laughs> with some Frank Capra elements and mm-hmm. uh, French New Wave and, you know, Kurosawa connections. But yeah, it is like Fincher is having, you know, again, to combat, you know, he and Dennis Benab are basically encountering both the audience looking for mindless over the top stuff like Michael Bay and then having to, yeah, have a Christopher Nolan type audience where they want something that will either really rivet them or really piss them off for days. Cause it doesn't make sense. The more they think hard about it. So he's having to do, he's never done the same movie again. I can't say he's done no. similar themes, but I can never say compare the game to fight club or Gone Girl 2-7, you know, like there's so much different camera angles, themes to latch onto, and 
I can't ever say that he's done a movie that isn't good in some capacity. Like, I don't care for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, hot take, but mm. just was never into that book or subject material or it just never grasped my interest. But Are I can't. Are there scenes you like from it, though? Yeah, absolutely. That there, I can't for the life of me say that there are in any way unacceptable performances or poorly thought out scenes. It's like, no, there's plenty of stuff in there. I just mm-hmm. never latched onto it. But it's like, uh, I, I, it kind of even goes into Zodiac. Some people find that better than Seven. Other people find it good, but more of a slow burn. I, you know, it's interesting how he he basically just wants to, he's like one of the few who I think can, make everyone interested in seeing his movies, even though they're not going to ever be happy. They're not going to be even necessarily compelling, but they're going to be very intriguing and suspenseful and just make you talk about him for days. And he's kind of gone in that respect to where it's kind of an unwritten rule, just like when anyone else, you know, is names announced to a project, you know, instantly what their signature brand is, you know, (laughs) Totally. Scorsese, if his name's announced, you know there's going to be some unusual, colorful narration and possibly some people getting curb stomped. You know, if Spielberg does a movie, it's going to be probably a brutal war movie or yeah, these very guys, yeah. upsetting, uh, you know, uh, explosion-filled uh, saga. And then, yeah, it's like at Nolan, there's going to be a lot of plot twists and Easter eggs. And so with him you don't really know what to expect yet. Like uh, all I have to do is basically make sure I don't read a review all the way because it's going to give half the twists away. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. He's been able to somehow, you know, he doesn't suffer from the uh, Shyamalan illness. That's a good contrast because there are so many people who, like you say, is like what they were hot for a second and then they kind of blew their load and then they kind of had to rebuild it, you know, uh, Shyamalan was definitely one of those like it didn't do him any other favors that he then had to kind of once everyone was hit and miss on his Twilight Zone-esque kind of nature then he started doing kind of money films on the side and then being locked out of them like you know The Happening and Last Airbender and then it's like then he had to work start from scratch and even actually go back to film school it's just like fuck no one wants to do that. <laughs> How can anyone want to do that? That is not healthy. Even when you are looking at the mistakes and what's not working, that's that's earth shattering to anyone's, you know, persona. And yeah, it would be tough to be him. I mean, and and props to that guy for still trying to make stuff uh, for so long. I know that old uh, 5.8 on IMDb. Yeah, old was clearly not a very good movie. According to most people, I didn't see it, but um, it seemed like he's made the same movie eight times in a row now, basically. Um, yeah. And and I don't think, but but the pro, but the thing is, I think Fincher could have devolved into something like that because they do have a couple similar first entries in some ways, aside from like Alien Three, maybe. But you know, they're making movies that are dark with a twist. Well, that that's a good segue because like propaganda films uh, that he launched basically had ushered in and repped so many other current blockbuster filmmakers uh you know again michael bay like him hate him whatever he is he's one of those 
I don't know what kind of movie to expect other than that it's going to be extremely over the top. Sometimes it's going to be very gritty and serious. Other times it's going to be very campy and yeah. <laughs> junky and kind of a guilty pleasure in some weird essence. It's very weird describing him. And I saw that it repped, that company also repped Antoine Fuqua. There's a guy who's kind of made it his bread and butter is have emotional gut punches every movie <laughs> to give action totally. for the guys have drama for the other people who are in the movie and uh, have a-list actors uh kicking the shit out of people <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i it's interesting that you talk about michael bay them both being from propaganda and um they're the opposite filmmaker in, in, and here's why, because my biggest issue with Michael Bay above all issues is that I, I think he's the most top five, at least, maybe, uh, the most insulting filmmakers there is. <laughs> yeah. He thinks his audience is an idiot. He thinks they're just the dumbest people, and then he can get away with anything. He can re- <laughs> then he does all these movies that... Reuse old scenes, reuse actual old footage from old movies, and we've seen that. He's seen the, the cut on YouTube of him showing the actual shots from the previous movies and just putting different robots on top of some, on top of the footage. So, I mean, he's just a cheater. He, he doesn't give a shit about his audience. He doesn't care if they're smart enough to understand that what he's doing is... <laughs> And cheap tricks, whereas so weird with the Pinterest, the opposite. Pinterest, the hundred percent opposite, because yeah. he actually thinks his audience is really smart, and he gives his audience a lot of credit for being able to follow along, and so he gives information really quickly. He lays out complex themes and um, situations within the movie world in a very quick manner at the beginning of the film and says, hey, if you're not ready, we're going to leave without you. And so that's the exact opposite of what Michael Bay does. And so he apparently quite interesting. does that on his sets too, where uh, people have noted from Fincher, they know when he's satisfied, but it's not going to be in the form of a hug necessarily. Okay. Like he, he, and so I found that interesting because that basically complements his style. Like, you, the audience, know what you're in for. If you're not paying attention, you just... It's not that it's too clever for its own good or that you haven't been paying attention. It's just uh, you're in the absolute wrong mood to be watching this kind of movie, and you actually could owe it to yourself to rewatch it as opposed to, like, a Dogma 95 movie where it's going to be trivial no matter what, you know? Sure, yeah. And like you say, Michael Bay, he does... He does dumb toy commercials and then he does like blockbusters that are easygoing like 13 hours of the rock and then he does even dumber movies for Bruckheimer so it's just like he he basically just he stopped giving a shit and he just wanted to just have fun with his toys and it is interesting how not giving a shit can work for certain filmmakers like and then there's other ones where it's like yeah, no, you really do need like five more opinions, my my dude. And Fincher, I think he just, I, I loved how in that Rolling Stone article, how he had to squash a more recent article that he had to just squash the whole, you know, that he's a diva, that he's a control freak. He's like, I might have done 70 takes, but it wasn't all on the same day. Good grief. So I really do uh, feel like it feel like that Jake Gyllenhaal argument on the set of Zodiac really did 
fuck with him for a bit. It didn't kill his progress or anything, but mm-hmm. it for a moment it did almost make me put him in the likes of Michael Mann or James Cameron, two people who I admire, but who I feel have fallen from grace quite a while back. Um, mm-hmm. And but they were notorious for like like doing like fifty hour days, you know, just no one everyone's getting like three to four hours of sleep and just endless shooting on film reels and doing all, you know, tons of uncredited film rewrites and sneaking into the editing studio and, uh, you know, stuff that you literally cannot do anymore without getting a lawsuit or in trouble with insurance and proper Mm -hmm. screen actors, director's guild rules. So it's interesting how, uh, you know, he he just does like 14 takes of every scene each day, but that somehow that argument, you know, he wasn't, in all fairness, uh, you know, he even backs it up there is like, you're not doing anything wrong. We're just giving a bit of everything, you know? And yeah. everyone seems to think it's like today's TV shows where they literally are doing like five takes, you know, multiple angles all at once and then moving on to the next scene shooting fast and raw for that totally. docudrama kind of look and he's kind of more of the hey you know I, you wouldn't have been hired if you weren't good so don't don't look for feedback from me you're you're awesome keep doing what you're doing stay in your lane <laughs> yeah yeah it's well because actors in general are a very delicate breed you know and they they want to hear that what they're doing is good and they want to give feedback and they want to have uh, confirmation and all those things. Oh, totally. If you have someone that doesn't really want to play that game, unless he absolutely wants to, then you're, th- there's going to be conflict there. I would be honored because uh, I don't have to hear any bossy language from you. I get to do what I want, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. It, yeah. He was, um, uh, Rosamund Pike was talking about working on Gone Girl and just saying it was one of the best, experiences she ever had because he was giving her the time to be able to explore and figure it out and and really make it her own in a way that she hadn't had before so i i think it's both sides of the you'll find this funny uh ben affleck has said that he's basically learned from just about every filmmaker he's worked with from gus van zandt to kevin smith to michael pay to David Fincher, so it's just so funny how those are all four totally different filmmakers. Yeah, two of them, and definitely in the campy vibe. And Fincher is diplomatic response from him. You're yeah. right. You would think everyone would be picky and just politely say, "Next question, please." Who am I inspired by? And he basically just he took something from each of them and applied it to his own, you know movies that he's directing now so it's interesting how yeah it's he's had this Fincher's had to squish this rumor and he's had to also just say you know like I I'm, I don't know if you've been in film school or anything but I, I got so tired of working with so many indie filmmakers who you know the actors were speaking their mind but basically dick slapping the d- director you know mm. big no-no mm-hmm. uh, uh, all you can do is basically you know keep your patience not say anything back or just silently say we're going to do something with this footage but you're not going to be on the set tomorrow morning but uh, what i was seeing many indie filmmakers doing and being 
acting like, oh, actors are so rude and prima donnas. is like, well, what did you do? Oh, I told him how to act. Oh, well, that's a no-no. <laughs> you, <can't, laughs> you can ask, you make a suggestion. No, that's just as bad as a manager, you know, being told by the assistant manager how to do their job. Just not cool. Make a suggestion. Don't don't micromanage. Don't be Hitler. <laughs> well, it's it's a. I think people conflate things that aren't the same thing. And, and thank you. I mean yes. Because <laughs> you can't. So it comes. It comes. I think it's black and white when the world is gray. <laughs> sure. That that for sure. But um, it is where the information comes from that is the most important, and I'll explain. So as a writer you are not supposed to as a as a screenplay writer you are not supposed to tell the director how to shoot it right i mean you can right. have little notes here and there maybe you get 10 opportunities per per um screenplay to say like and the camera sees blank or and there is a dolly shot or whatever but like you know beginning screenwriters um often litter their works with telling the director how to do things and you can't do that right that that's the opposite that is not your job at all because that's the director (laughs) bingo (laughs) okay so what you have to do is explain your world so sufficiently that the director would know how to do that the proper director and would be able to understand because of your explanation of what the world is what you would want all right and then you go as you go from the director to the actor it's the same thing so the director through the screenplay and with their own words is <laughs> describing the the scene so well that the actor knows what they what that person what their character would be doing in that world so they don't need to be told what to do they just need to be elucidated they just need That's to understand so true. the world so well we'll return after these messages Hello and welcome to Culture Shocked, the pop culture podcast brought to you by four aging millennials and our outdated opinions. Join us every Tuesday as we discuss movies, TV, games, and even music, new and old. Dude, what do you think you're doing? Are you seriously trying to record a promo without us right now? Well, uh, yeah. Dude, you can't just do the promo by yourself. Who's going to listen to that? Yeah, and you probably haven't even told them that we're a pop culture podcast where we always agree on everything. Uh, for instance, the Sam Raimi trilogy easily being the best of the Spider-Man movies. J- no, no. But I think we can all agree that Jaws is a classical masterpiece. Mm, nope, don't like that. But we do all agree that the sequel trilogy of Star Wars is the best in the Skywalker saga, right, guys? That comment is so ridiculous. I don't even know where to Anyways, uh, that'll do it from all of us here at Culture Shock. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Brent Pope, the host of Breakfast with Brent Pope. You've seen me on some of your favorite TV shows saying things like, give it up, Jimmy. You got to sink this putt to win. On Breakfast with Brent Pope, I sit down with guests from the entertainment world and we do it all over breakfast. Or should I say breakfast? Every week on Breakfast, you get inside Hollywood info and tips, great breakfast wrecks and booty debates. Most of all, you get the most delightful 30 minutes of your week. So dig in. It's breakfast time. Listen at breakfast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Do you ever find yourself thinking about who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman? Hi, I'm James Gavsey, and on the Who Would Win show, me and my co-host Ray ignore anything important happening in the outside world 
and debate fictional battles between characters from comics, movies, and video games. We got a new show every week, and almost always, am I the winner? Yeah, not true, Ray. In the past, we've discussed such matches as Captain America versus Darth Vader, Solid Snake versus the Iron Giant, classic matchups like Robocop versus Terminator, and even the Muppets versus Sesame Street. That one was crazy. So if you're a fan of geek culture and love a spirited debate, check out the Who Would Win Show wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at whowouldwinshow.com. We let things pile up in the DVR, we add them to our queues, we wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays, we time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. Cool thing about Blind Knowledge is we are in multiple countries. We are worldwide all across the globe. We are in the U.S. We are in the U.K. We are in Canada, Germany, India, Japan. We're in Australia, y'all. Blindknowledge.com. Now back to the feature presentation. And then that goes from to the next round too. So right. then that then the actor, uh, then the viewer gets to see. They don't need to be told what to think either. They don't need to be told how to feel. They just need to have the world explained to them so well through the actor, through the character, that they can then make their own opinions. So it goes all the way through every single step of filmmaking. You don't tell someone how to feel. You explain the situation so well that they know exactly how to feel. And And he doesn't talk any smack. He doesn't, you know, it's not like when, you know, George Lucas or Francis Ford Coppola, you know, get in a measuring contest about working with the other. It isn't one of those where he's like, hey, I did all that. You know, every interview he says, like, people will ask him, like, what's part of the process? He's like, it's a collaboration. I'm like, that's so he is so much bigger than the very world that he he talks about or that he brings to life on screen. He knows. And all these people he's worked with, he's brought them on since the very beginning, whether they're doing the title sequences, visual effects, casting or uh just uh assistant you know directing they he has literally been able to convey a sense of their expectations and reality to them and like you say he works well with the actors because they understand his tone and mood that he's trying to establish as opposed to like you say take a screenplay that is so not in his zone and then readapt it and then you know anger the studio or the screenwriter oh that's not at all what i had you know pinned down on paper the wrong man for the job he is like he basically and it's just so rare for someone to you know i actually don't mind the uncut version of alien free even though that's basically you know this compiled together studio version is like it, it was one of those like hey it's imperfect but it's a watchable creature feature but it was one of those is like at least he got it out the wazoo instantly, you know, and mm-hmm. still was doing all the commercials and music videos. And then, you know, everything changed in 95 and he's been able to do again, you know, fantasy movies, real life documentary, you know, mm-hmm. docudramas, 
historical pieces and psychological horror films and uh, other just nail-biting mysteries inspired by real life, you know, uh, ordeals. And I think he's just still one of the many, I would still put him in like the top 20 of current filmmakers in this day that everyone's going to want to see something by him. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, he's been more consistent than just about anyone, I would say. Um, He's careful. It, It only took it getting it out at the rising of his star and he kept learning every day, you know, how to word stuff differently, how to compromise differently. You see so many others who, you know, some of it is, okay, you've been handed a lot of real bad luck on one giant plate, you know, and then there's others where it's like, "Ah, I think everyone just doesn't like working with you because you're just a hothead. (laughs) You're just too opinionated. And, uh, I get so tired even now when I see everyone putting a filmmaker on the spot and they're asking them, what do you think of the current indie film Oscar bait or superhero deal? It seems like that's coming out like every three months, someone's asked an exclusive Forbes interview and it's just like, okay, well, this doesn't change anything. We love these filmmakers. I've seen now being asked on the spot, uh, not only Dennis Vinab, uh, Neil Blomkamp, Jane Campion, uh, even David Cronenberg. It's like, you guys, it can all be enjoyed. You don't have to agree with their point of view. You can just enjoy their work. It's like, good grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I think people, yeah, we just have never been in a situation where there is so much media out there and so many things being made, but also where th- where things are governed by so few voices, the ones you actually get to see. Um, you know, the idea that you can go to Netflix and then just click a button that says, uh, what's it say? Show me something or whatever. I forget. What yeah. <laughs> like, like that, that is such a funny idea to me. Cause I'm, I'm like, that's not, that's whatever they paid the most money for. That's whatever they want you to see. That's, that's, you're just telling them advertise to me. And the idea that we've sort of come some people like circle. to be guinea pigs or follow I their guess. leaders off a cliff. I don't know. That's that's quite exactly what that is. That's just such a funny I would like never click that button even if I wanted to watch the thing that they have. Yeah, I wouldn't. It would probably be I don't care how much you spend on it, is the quality there, you know. And so many people they it's very rare to find someone who is both a businessman and an entertainer. It's like Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, you've seen Robert Town has been noted as being a great rewriter, script doctor on so many movies of different qualities and being able to share the credit with all of them. Joel Silver was known as being very passionate while very angry as a producer. Mm-hmm. And then you just got all these other guys who, again, like I say, they just seem to vary by movie or take a while to find their groove or just, you know, and if you're not doing award-winning movies, then yeah, you're either being the gritty 80s inspired filmmaker, the WTF-ish uh, horror guy, or the pot-smoking, you know, cult uh, comedy guy. So it's just like that there's so many different ways to be a crowd pleaser or, you know, make uh, top 10 movies of a year list. And it just seems like 
the cha- the tastes are changing so very much that no one, you know, with how toxic the internet has become, everyone's kind of forgetting how to be constructive after a while. And I think this guy is going to be able brings out the best in any kind of audience, any kind of filmmaker who even studies them, because he, like you say, he doesn't try to emulate everything. He just tries to kind of just stick the basics, you know, study, listen, and create. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like what drives him, you know, uh, psychologically speaking from a, um, from a story perspective, I don't know what's going on inside the dude's head, obviously, but what drives him is that alienation with the world and having to, what would you say, um, how, uh, finding situations for it to be difficult for his characters in a unique way over and make over you and over. feel it as a opposed to a lot of times a kafka-esque way right and kafka is a good way world I... falling in on them and what do they do about it you know that's that's a lot of his stories somehow and so i think when you can sort of come back to that um that when you're grounded by something fairly specific like that and you can sort of find his way whatever it happens, whatever the viewer happens to think that their version of that is, I think Fincher has a very specific version in his own world. of As opposed to being like Ridley Scott, where, oh, you guys are too dumb to get it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. But there's, you know, I I, I tend to think that like, going back to Shyamalan or whatever, you're like, he, it seems to me that he just likes movies that flip you on your ass at the end. And it doesn't really matter which. In many ways, everyone's a plot device in his best movies. Exactly. Christopher Nolan has really. Where that comes from. Oh, totally. I mean, that's how I am with Christopher Nolan. He has very creative plot twists. And then there are times where it's like, eh, that undermines everything. Or that was cool and all, but I can't watch this more than twice. Just going to find plot holes that. Well, his things are just such big concepts that it's almost impossible not to invalidate yourself sometime you know that's that's a that's a difficult thing because he has to create a world that is so supernatural in one way or another that like how do you make everything work and how do you not make it a nine-hour movie with a bunch of explanatory he already has enough exposition exposition obviously but how do you not just like have like a work cited and be like oh by the way this could work because of this reason on the screen as you're watching it totally so he has to cut bait at some time and it you know hundreds if not thousands of times in a screenplay to be like i know this is sort of crazy but just go with me on this and so as long as you go with him on most things yeah he doesn't like um would you say he doesn't make you suffer for playing by the rules most of the time and really, that's the only time when I get mad is when a filmmaker doesn't even play by their own rules. And that's a Michael Bay thing in spades. Oh, hell, that's a Dogma 95 thing. I see so many of those oh. guys now are using CGI and scripts. I'm like, oh, sure. That's well, got tired not of making part movies. of the Dogma 95 style. So why even bother doing it? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it was a limited um, ethos that could only get you so far. 
and it was a, obviously a reaction and because they came out with the digital cameras that were sort of capable enough to be able to do that and all that bingo the imax cameras and everything and fincher has stated of the people he admires and who as well as a contrast to the kinds of movies he makes he noted is like when he sees a steven soderbergh film sure he wants to see a particular gimmick when he sees mm-hmm. a uh Sam Mendes film he's looking for how large scale it is made and translates across screen so it was like that was an interesting either in the decider or rolling stone chat mm-hmm. one of the two mm-hmm. it was cool is seeing him sum up because those are very similar filmmakers in that they have uh, accomplished a lot of different uh just heavy material to do and come from similar walks of life and to see this guy again you know so many other music video and commercial directors just get a bad rap just because they're not necessarily known for being the most intense storytellers and Fincher even acknowledges like I got uh you know you got a claim for like George Michael's freedom video and Mm -hmm. uh the 1990 music video that Michael Jackson did and when people said oh I love that Michael Jackson video he's like yeah it was going to be big. It was a, it's a Michael Jackson, you know? <laughs> so I thought that was interesting because it's like most people would have been like, yeah, you liked it, didn't you? <laughs> Eat it up. And like, he's not necessarily a circus performer where he wants to see how much cotton candy and wows he can get from the audience so much as he just wants to see the thing just be conjured up, you know, that it, that he's agreed to make for, a giant studio entity. So. Yeah. He understands the elements that are appealing to humans on a base level. And he knows how to put those in there to grab oh, totally. while having a very vast undercurrent of a very specific take of his idea of human psychology. So those are always happening simultaneously in all of his films and all of his TV shows and, and all the screenwriters, really what makes what he is is yeah Yeah, but but i mean even all the screenwriters he's worked with like have complimented is like he understood us we knew he was the right guy to convey and bring our material to life (laughs) Mm -hmm. especially in sorkin for social network and the writer seven you know they were just both noting is like yeah (laughs) it didn't change a single damn thing that we wrote (laughs) yeah and it's interesting because those yeah so many of those projects seem like they're written by the same people right like i tend yeah. to forget that he even has writers sometimes i know that he does on almost everything or does on everything but um i tend to forget that they're not his projects because they do seem much more auteurish than most people who don't write all their stuff it's interesting and you know part of that is what survivorship bias it's like he their sample bias what do you want to say because he's picking the things that he wants to do and so they're already within a certain wheelhouse he wants to save everyone time and effort before they push a single button you know yeah yeah i suppose it's a lot more i think the alien free was a wake up he's like i hated making this he didn't even want to participate in the making of documentary because he's like it's just so many unpleasant memories why you know best of luck I, i don't think I have anything constructive to say, so sorry. Yeah, yeah. He said he didn't want to make any other movies either. You know, he said I'm probably never going to make another movie again. Yeah, really and, and we knew everyone yeah. does that. It's just like, you know, 
when you're at a bad job and you're just like, I, I don't want to work ever again. <laughs> I fucking hated her, you know, and that's not true. You got to be able to put, you know, food on the table sure. and hone your craft. It's just, and I think he was able to let all that negative energy out, but he channeled all this other material in him that kept him going. And he was never in such dire need of employment he was always staying busy and trying different things and you know he has eye-catching visuals and i mean in that he really does just think out his shots and like you say he's he's been another again rare instance of being able to take people other people's stories make them just as much his own as it is theirs and convey all these other just vibrant amount of energies and themes that most people just cannot do usually it's one or the other where hey it's a cool idea but it doesn't make any sense but hey those visuals were cool you know any other filmmaker would have done 50 50 they would have you know just done one or the other they can't do both and he's able to basically do a lot of different things because like you say he's able to he understands other people. They understand him. They have the unwritten code. They're almost like a giant corporation. <laughs> yeah. If yeah, not yeah, a yeah. Gestapo, he's literally, he's just, he's able to be a giant battalion and rally the troops. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, people believe in him, obviously, and they've probably believed in him since day one just because he has a certain type of personality that, that helps that. He's had so many unrecognizable performances by all the actors he's had in his movies, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and That's very true. there's even plenty of movies are. I need to give a rewatch, like The Game. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've seen Fight Club, so I should probably rewatch that one. You know, it's just uh, all of his stuff does merit some discussion, regardless of whether you want to make it in the top. 250 or not it's you can't deny that there are many of his films that do leave a lasting impression yeah absolutely and that's what he says you know i'm interested in movies of scar is one of his quotes i mean that's that really scar <laughs> yeah. yeah um you know he said uh when i went in um when i saw when i saw jaws that was the last time i ever went in the ocean you know and that's the types <laughs> of movies i want to make people feel that way about something not that i want i'm not trying to hurt them on purpose but i want them i wanted to have that sort of emotional effect on them that's a great quote and i do feel like feeling just always seems to go out the window everyone's just so taken aback by again the check or i get to work with this talent and almost always it just seems like there's a sloppy third act and they're just like i can't do anything i'm like yes you can you can rewrite it you can you know mm -hmm. shoot a few different endings because like there's plenty of other guys who've done music videos again you know Antoine Foucault did music videos and he's done all these different kinds of dramas and gritty character studies uh Tony Scott has kind of been one of those who's just like you know counter to his brother Ridley who's kind of wants to do giant epics he was more just like I'm gonna do a violent you know character piece and I'm gonna you know, make all these shots actually matter instead of just be, oh, that's cool or, you know, that's sloppy or, but it's, you know, it's a Matrix or Born Identity type style. And I, I don't even know how anyone 
gets confidence in each other other than again just a lot of meetings and a lot of just faith in each other because it just seems like and anyone who bursts onto the scene now is like they get there but they don't want to talk about their experience because it's very messy or uh, they are very talented but they're just known for being prickly which is a shame because Mm-hmm. You know, everyone wants to be able to do something good at work as opposed to hate their life for six months. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I mean, that's, you know, you've been working your entire career to get the opportunity to do that thing, whatever you're doing at that moment, whatever that project is, whatever that story you're trying to tell, that's what you've been working towards your entire career to do. Because, you know, you're most. It's almost project. like the guys who are on the C or D list is like most of them will fess up, you know, like filmmakers who were hot for a minute and then kind of made you know made for tv you know b pictures kind of just would say hey it's meant to be that's where my audience is now whoever Mm -hmm. wants me to make what i'm contracted to do and then you see it with some actors where they had a big head and then their last movie flopped and everyone had an excuse to never work with them again and then they finally you know you know they found faith or they found that they need to put their ego aside and there's others who just you know sucked it up there's like hey i'm a c or d lister that's just where the dominoes fell nothing bad about it i guess i'll be doing something schlocky for lifetime or sci-fi channel you know it's just it it really does depend on the attitude on the people the person and i think he has said you know there is no second chance i gotta make every you know movie count every time instead of you know get uh just find it complex or get find it to be a burden and you know because you see so many other people who get fired and people aren't sympathetic for their termination because they're known for Mm. uh, yelling at them or just you know taking way too damn long to set up any shots and exhausting their faith in them so it's interesting with this guy he's just an absolute rarity (laughs) it seems like it you know and that all comes from confidence i'm sure and that's sort of what he's talked about you know he has he has to know more than more about what film he's making than anyone on set he has to know more about other people's roles he's talking about his first movie when he was 27 and here he is he's almost 60 you know yeah crazy right I, i have you seen his latest movie which was by his late father about the writer who conjured up the script for citizen kane i have not seen it but i think yeah i watched Mank. yeah uh how does that contrast with his other films and um, tv shows you know visually and and storytelling wise it was uh similar in a lot of ways it's it's very beautiful and striking and um has its own visual language that he employs i uh, love that um the storyline is somewhat compelling, not entirely. Um, you know, for something, if, if he has a fault, I would say is, you know, so many of the characters behave in a way, in any of his movies, so many of the characters behave in a way that is not very satisfying as a person, right? Just because people are doing shitty things to each other or are, put in positions where they just have to struggle for their lives and they're not, you know, they, they don't have at the end of the movie, some huge 
brilliant moment of figuring everything out and saving the puppy and everyone's so happy now, right? He doesn't have any of those movement moments at the end. That's of any true. Of he, I would never call him someone who's self-indulgent. He just document and then really show. And he, uh, I mean, uh, it seemed like this was, you know, a more personal project than most, you know, cause again, he's adapting his old man's, you know, screenplay. And at the same time, I don't think he was going to get any comfortable. He's like, Hey, this doesn't mean just throw money at the screen and see what sticks. I still put the same amount of care that you put into anything else. And Oh yeah, no, no, I don't think it. I, I would call him probably a selfless person in some ways because there's so many other people when you see their creative, you know, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, don't kill, don't shoot the messenger, just nod yes to the studio assistant that came by you know, instead of telling them to go fuck themselves. And then, you know, there's other times where it's like, well, you really were asking for way too much. You didn't need 10 million to shoot this expensive, you know, crane shot. Or, sure, you know. yeah. And yeah. he, again, he's very selective about the actors and I can't even think of any of them that release, I'm sure the studio enlists them because, you know, investment, but that's definitely not what I ever see on screen. It's always just like, okay, I'm working with them and you know, I'm going to get something out of them that you haven't ever seen before performance wise or character wise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's part of the brilliant part of it because uh, the actors are in the world. I don't think he makes vehicles from very many things. Um, yeah. You know, none of the, none of his projects really feel like vehicles. Whereas, going back to Michael Bay or something like every single project of his is a vehicle either (laughs) either it's for robots or it's for a specific a different kind of explosion yeah that's all it is and so he's not doing anything like that his vehicle is like alienation (laughs) like (laughs) that's essentially every one of his projects is a vehicle for a complex study of psychological alienation and you're like well that's not sellable you can't you can't get butts and seats for that. And he's like, well, that's what I do. So take it or leave it. And fortunately, he's found enough things to put on top of that that are. He has far- some hook, like with Seven. You got Correct. again a serial killer going after people for seven deadly sins. Sure. And social network was going to be a big thing because it was about the creator of Facebook. But then there was another twist: is like it doesn't start or end the way you think. And mm-hmm. even though it was already outdated by the time it had come out, it was still very relevant in that it's showing the shady nature of Silicon Valley and how, you know, much like Microsoft and Apple, how everyone thinks they're a genius and everyone's appreciated until, you know, everyone walks out of all those angry board meetings. And, uh, you know, Gone Girl is again, you're just dealing with, people who aren't easy to classify you know who's crazier the husband suspected of murdering his spouse or is his wife you know bad, more batshit crazy than him you know it's sure. there's so many degrees of discussion within all these parameters he sets up to where you can hardly say you know it's just like even if you don't want to rewatch any of his movies and you're like i got it i'm, I'm good you still it's like Oh wow! I, you know, there, there's so many other perspectives you can take away with it, and 
obviously with all the neo-Nazis misunderstanding Fight Club, I mean, <laughs> that was going to happen. But again, you can't say he intended a movie to be manipulative. I mean, he even came out as criticizing the recent movie, The Joker, just because mm. he, he was just very unimpressed with movies that try to do too much or, you know, are only known because they're a sequel or a spinoff or reimagining of something when, mm. you know, instead he just comes out in that interview is like, so they took Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy and they mashed it together and it doesn't work because it's trying uh, to say too many things. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting here seeing him say stuff like that because there's so many other people who will kind of do a hot take, but then not, not really back it up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I Or it sounds like a diss, which may or may not be what the point of that, you know, intense interview was. <laughs> Why at this point? Yeah, you've, you already have a career, man. You already have a career. Ten other filmmakers would be happy to have a piece of. Um, so why <laughs> would you want to be dissing people at this point? Who gives a shit? Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't no. come off as bitter. He's like, okay, you asked me, so I'm going to tell you what I think. But it's never it's like that guy's an idiot or... No. Yeah, no. no, no, no. Why would you? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think any film, any person at that part in their career, if they're start, if they're talking shit like that. I mean, come on, get out. Of I here. mean, his responses are just so brief compared to other people in an interview who will just let the f bombs fly and just you know hmm. be so unloaded. And I think this is it. He knows how to gain people's attention and trust, but then keep them seated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of any interview where he's going, oh, you know, losing <laughs> his train of thought. No, he's in it to win it. Yeah, he's a he's a calculated person who understands exactly. I I feel like he understands exactly where he came comes from and has for three decades or whatever. Right? Yeah, he, he was born in where he was inside, and I think that's that's an interesting thing about an artist is to find someone who sort of comes out fully formed. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, much like an artwork, he's definitely does impose that kind of look at you in a museum and he's the most unusual thing that stands out in that museum and he's very hard to describe. <laughs> mm. And mm. Upon closer examination and I think yes, he he definitely He's earned the title of artist, and he's also, you know, he didn't want to be anything else. He wanted to be one, and he just kept being a trooper. So. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, two of my other favorite filmmakers are the Coen brothers, or one filmmaker, and in, in, in a way, you can even describe them as. And, <laughs> one giant um, entity. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, the thing that is their their feeling of their films is so consistent we're talking whatever 22 films or something now and um you know from start to finish almost the very first film maybe the second or third they start to find exactly what they're all about but um throughout every one of them we know that it's coen brothers movie and we know that it's pretty fully formed (laughs) yeah they found which part matters to them and you know, and those are often characterized. One of their quotes is like, we just put our characters in a situation and we just keep making everything more and more difficult. 
to see what'll happen to see how they'll respond and that's you know, that's the basis of storytelling this basis of filmmaking in general but i think they stick to that in a more specific and measured way than than most other filmmakers do is is that they don't uh what would you say they enter absurdity into each one of those uh each one of those cause and effect scenarios and then they just keep going and they are very consistent in that and i think they came out fully formed just like fincher came out fully formed came out referring to you know say after their second or third thing consistently throughout the rest of their career and i think that's what's so satisfying from a um film uh sorry from a movie goer's perspective from a fan's perspective is to see something that is a known entity but then just keeps getting a little bit better you know i love that um because i don't want to see a big departure into some other world because i got a million other options for some other world if i want a different type of filmmaker i can go find that i don't want or start the, the movie off so differently just to appease the masses, you know? <laughs> sure, yeah, 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 I don't I don't want them to change with the times. I, I don't want them to switch up their style just to fit in, right? Right. The rapper says. There's no um, point. No. There's a rapper I like named Aesop Rock, and they talk about, you know, he sounds different than every other rapper, I would say, significantly, and started his first EP, sounds different, sounds exactly like the rest of its stuff in a good way and has been like that forever and that's going on 30 years 35 years whatever it's been worth of music and um you know that's what you get with a fincher that's what you get with the cohen brothers and that's what you get with say a pt anderson or a wes anderson and i'm sure there's 10 more but after that that list goes down real fast <laughs> then you find all sorts of other things um yeah so it, it's interesting i mean that that's what i like about filmmakers or writers or artists or whatever is I, I want them to give me i want their brand and i want their brand to be sort of meticulously well defined and then little wrinkle little wrinkle little nuance little addition but i want that brand and fincher is one of those and that's what's so great about it to me. Stellar. Well, that's a good closing spot. Thank you ever so much for being here on the show. Certainly. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The podcast is available on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Apple, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites. Thanks a million for listening. It's a jacked up.